We acknowledge traditional owners of the lands on which we recorded these episodes and their elders past and present. This is Graduate in the USA, here to help Australian students take advantage of the many opportunities to study at US colleges and universities. Hi, I'm Adele Gillen. I'm a diplomat at the US consulate in Sydney. I am passionate about promoting opportunities for international students to study in the U.S. I studied for my bachelor's degree at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and for my master's degree at the University of Chicago, alongside many impressive students from around the world. I'm looking forward to talking today with Liz O'Connell from the University of Pennsylvania to explore how to produce a strong U.S. college application. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Adele. It's wonderful to join you. And uh, my journey actually started in Sweden, where I came as an international student uh, to Philadelphia, to the University of Pennsylvania. So I can truly relate for the audience out here who are students who are embarking on their journey. But right now, for a number of decades, I've been the Director of International Admissions at the University of Pennsylvania and also had the opportunity to read thousands of applications as well as uh, chair our selection committee and really work with students from all around the world. What I'm especially privileged with here is for a few decades now, I've been working as the regional representative also with Australian students. I've had the privilege of visiting Perth and the coast all the way from Brisbane down to Melbourne and, and getting to know a lot of school officials, careers advisors, and working also with the wonderful team at Education USA. So this is very relevant for me. So thank you for inviting me to this podcast. And hopefully we can demystify this process a little bit along the way. Absolutely. I think that you're going to be able to help us do that. And it'll be a really interesting conversation. But before diving into our topic, I'd love to hear from you on a couple of key things. Could you talk about the University of Pennsylvania being a selective institution and what international students should be aware of when considering applying to an institution such as yours? Sure. I think that it's important to, to know that the United States, you know, has a wonderful wealth of institution. There are actually 4,000 institutions of higher education in the United States. So one can truly say that there is a university for every type of a student in the U.S. Now, a number of these universities are what's called selective, and that really has to do with the rate of admission. If about half of the students or less are accepted, you know, it's seen as selective. My university happens to be, it's a private university. It's one of the eight Ivy League universities, and together with a, a number of other institutions are in what what is, uh, as of recent, been called sort of the ultra-selective group of institutions where less than 10% of the students are, are accepted. I think it's important to understand that those are students who are all qualified. So I think that is what uh, is the mystery. You know, there's this assumption that there is this sort of golden key. If you just had the ability to open the door, you would know, or that there is some sort of magic formula that if you only understand that. And it's far more complex than that. It, it's a little bit like an art as well, and not a science. And hopefully we can go into some of, of the details of that to help you better understand uh, the process. 
Well, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about the art of filling a freshman class, because I think that's something that many Australian students wouldn't be familiar with. I think uh, understanding a little bit what happens at the undergraduate level at a university, you know, might help a little bit. Because I think if you're, you're looking at universities, not just in Australia, but, but really anywhere around the world, you're accepting so many students to study chemistry, so many students to study law, etc. But for us, we are trying to build a community, a residential community, where you're really talking about a four-year which is what it takes for your typical bachelor's degree, a four-year residential 24-7 experience that uh, happens in the classroom, but there's also a lot that happens outside and so much learning from those that you are with your other students. And also think about the experiences as internships and other experiences you might have during holidays and breaks. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But I think there's another part of uh, filling a freshman class. I mean, we all will have a number of students that need to be accepted. And that's true anywhere in the world, right? We happen to have 2,400 students as a medium-sized university. So, so that is clearly an institutional goal. But going back to the example of, say, filling so many spots for chemistry, you know, for us, we might have uh, a range of institutional goals. For example, we might have a new academic program where, you know, digital humanities is new. So we want some students in that. We happen, even though we're an Ivy League university, we happen to have Division One athletics. So all the coaches will want someone to play on the team. Our orchestra, you know, needs more than someone who plays the violin. We want our Model United Nations to be active and, and so on and so forth, right? So you might have certain uh, goals set by the institution, which is the pragmatic side besides, you know, filling the class, but then you're also trying to build this community. Every single person in that community plays a role, right? So you remove one piece, then it's going to look a little different. But, but this is one out of many myths because the assumption is that, oh, the institutions have quotas, which box do I fit in? Is it the Australian box or is it some other box, right? And it, this goes back to the art, you know, and the fact that, the, you know, that, that it's not as precise um, or, 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 or some sort of box that one fits into. That's important for someone to understand in terms of, you know, how we build our class and how we set our priorities. Thanks for explaining that university perspective. And now I'd like to dig in today's topic from the applicant's perspective, how to produce a strong U.S. college application. Could you tell us a little bit more about the holistic application process that U.S. colleges adopt when reviewing applications? I'll be happy to. And, and depending on the university that you're speaking to, you might hear different terminology. Holistic is, is very common, but sometimes you might hear contextual review, uh, whole person review, more comprehensive review, and it really means the same thing. And then again, taking a step back and looking at other universities, and we can, you know, in other countries, we can, we can look at Australia as an example. At least my understanding of how admission uh, happens to Australian universities you know, it's a little bit like a yardstick uh, with a cutoff. 
it can be extremely selective to, for example, to study medicine in most countries. It's incredibly selective, but it's very predictable. You know, it depends on the state. And, you know, if you are in New South Wales, where, where you are right now, it's the HSC. And then that gets converted to an ATAR. And everyone knows their ATAR. And they know if they need to study medicine at University X, that's what they need, right? It's very clear cut, very predictable, albeit could be extremely selective. Now, our institution could be equally selective. However, we look at multiple criteria. Why? Because we're trying to create a freshman class, a community with different voices, right? Now, sometimes, again, there's a myth surrounding that, that somehow or other, the academics don't matter as much as they would, say, in Australia, when it's all about the ATAR and the HSC results. And, and that, that is absolutely not wrong, because the academics come first. We are first and foremost academic institutions. Yet, we also have other goals in terms of four-year experience that I was referring to earlier. So let's take a moment and just really look at, at how all of these pieces come together uh, with holistic admission. And I think one way of looking at it is context. It's very, very important for us to understand where the student is coming from. So in this case, we're looking at understanding the Australian educational system. We're not trying to fit someone into an American mold. But let's look at Australia and the complexities within the country, depending on what state you are in. And even within a state, within a city, there are different schools with different intakes. Grades mean different things in different institutions, uh, even if the uh, HSC results are the same. And there are different opportunities that students have. And what about students who have shifted and moved from one institution or even one curriculum to another? And then let's throw in complexities like pandemic that we're all dealing with, how that has changed our lives in terms of opportunities. So all of that is context. And that has to be understood first. And once you understand that, then you ask yourselves a couple of fundamental questions. Based on the opportunities that the student has had, how has the student made the most out of the opportunities within their school, both in the classroom and outside the classroom? And more importantly also, is there evidence that the student is going to take that to our campuses where we have these wonderful resources and make the most out of those opportunities throughout their four years. But going back to the academics, that has to be there at the onset, but it, that's holistic as well in the review in the sense that we're not just looking at the final external assessment, such as the HSC or VCE or whichever state you are in, but we want to know what happens in the classroom on a day-to-day -day level because we want to see how that translates to our educational system, where it matters what you do in the classroom. So we want to see what the internal marks are like and understand what that means. And then we want to hear the voices of the people who have observed you. We want to be a fly on the wall in the classroom and hear what your teachers are observing. Do you have that intellectual curiosity? What motivates you? How do you respond to your peers? Let's look at someone who's going to study engineering. It's really important that you know calculus and physics and you know what it's like to be an engineer. But if you can't work as a team, that can be really hard. So where can we learn from that? We can learn from your teachers. Are you willing to take some intellectual risks? Are you willing to go outside your comfort zone to try some new things? That's really important. 
to us, right? So we put all those pieces together academically. We also offer you the opportunity to take standardized testing, such as the SAT or ACT. There's been a lot about that recently, especially with the pandemic, because a lot of institutions have gone what's called test optional in the sense that it is an opportunity if you can, but it will not be held against you if you cannot. That's something to watch very carefully because, you know, those policies can change and they can vary from university to university. For a university like mine, it is optional. So a student who wants to present that and can take it can, but others might choose to just lean back on their, in this case, Australian credentials. But there is another important part of the application, and that is what happens outside of the classroom. Again, a myth, we count the hours, or certain activities carry more weight than others, uh, or you know, we want to know, you know, fill out the whole application, every single space. It's really the impact that you've had. And to show a sense of continuity and commitment, something you enjoy doing, and also using that space. And I think the best way is to give an example. Say a student, for example, um, I know everyone can't be the key school leaders, but let's assume for the sake of argument that, that you were chosen to be head girl at your school. What we'd be interested in knowing is how have you used that privilege and that position of head girl to make an impact in your community? And then someone says, oh, you know, there's a pandemic right now. You know, I was uh, on the soccer team and we didn't play any games because of the pandemic and I was captain of the team. And, you know, will that be held against me? And I would say absolutely not. What that is now creating is a new space outside of the soccer field and without really a blueprint and something predictable, but you're still a leader of that team as a captain. How have you used that position to support the team and be creative, take initiative, and really show true leadership? So it's, it's the why, not the what all the time. And it's being able to tell your story of what meaning that has. So it doesn't matter if you are an athlete or a musician or a debater or, or a school leader. The point is that you have a balance between what you're passionate about and interested in and have made a contribution in outside of class and what you've done in class. Because we hope that you will continue that tradition when you go to university, which will enrich our community. So we want to hear about it. And then there's one last piece, which is, is there a fit between what you're looking for and what we offer? And how do you get to that point? Well, first of all, you have to do some self-exploration to really see what is important to you and what you hope to gain out of this university experience. And then do your research on the universities and be able to help us see if there's a match, right? And that's where the essays and filling out the application and all these short answer questions and, and so on, and all those pieces come together. So that's a very important part. And that's the part where you have the greatest impact, uh, because that's something you're doing now as opposed to something you did two years ago, three years ago, or things that are more set in stone. If you position yourself well, by if you're applying to the most selective schools, you also make sure you have a safety net and you spread out your applications and you thoughtfully go through the process and you're going to have wonderful opportunities. And remember, there are 4,000 universities in America alone, let alone the rest of the world. So it's a great opportunity for you. 
Liz, I think you just debunked so many of the myths that I had hoped we could talk about today. This idea that there's a magic secret formula that somebody can sell you or advise you on, and the idea that there are certain boxes you have to check. But this idea of telling your story, explaining who you are, where you want to go, and what you would bring to the university, I think is really great guidance. Are there any other tips that you can share as a reader of applications that you would like students to know as they're preparing an application to a U.S. university? It's important to start early because you have to start really with asking yourself a few questions. One is, is the American system a right fit? If that is the case, then do some self-exploration, you know, look at some criteria as you have 4,000 choices. What kind of environment do I want to be in, size, location? So what what kind of a learner are you? Are you more of an applied learner, uh, i.e., you know, I'm a STEM student, but I'm applied. Maybe I'm interested in engineering, or am I more of a pure scientist? Uh, am I looking at theoretical economics, or am I more applied, as in business? Am I a musician looking for a conservatory, or am I looking for a broader sort of liberal arts or university education? And what do I like to do outside of class, you know? And what about the people? Don't underestimate the importance of the people around you. Who do I want to be with? Am I looking for a very traditional American experience at a state's school where most people come from the surrounding area and they have, you know, like Big Ten sports and so on? Or am I looking for a very global institution? Do I want an urban environment or do I want a small college in a small town out in, into nature more? You know, there, there, there are many, many things like that that you need to sort of consider uh, to see if it's, if it's a good fit. Many universities, about 900 universities, use something called the Common Application, and that lends its very much to holistic admissions. And that commonapp.org is readily available to take a look at the application. Watch the academic calendar in Australia because you're going to finish at the end of the calendar year. Early deadlines are around November. Some of rolling admissions could be October and onwards. Other deadlines come in January. Well, what's happening in your life then? Unless you're in a gap year, you are finishing your schooling and all the traditions that go along with it besides the exam. So it's a good idea for you to map out a schedule and think about when these, and if you're going to take SATs or other types of standardized testing, that even more so, uh, map out uh, a schedule and deadlines uh, and spread things out. Take advantage of your holidays to get started. Um, there's again these myths about, you know, we talked about essays earlier, you know, there's a certain essay that gets you into this school, or there's a perfect essay topic, there are books written about it, I'm sure there are podcasts about it. The truth is, it's us wanting your story, and no one can tell your story but you, it's unique to you, but you need time to think. Go out into nature, spend time with yourself, do some thinking, stay away from everyone that has an opinion and wants to pick your essay topic, because your voice is going to vanish from that. And then we're not going to get to know the real authentic you, which is so important, because we're looking for a fit between you and what we offer as an institution and building a community. So keep that in mind. And the other piece of advice I would give is the increasingly virtual world that we're living in, there's a tremendous amount 
of free information out there that we as universities produce. And also, you know, Education USA does a lot of things as well. You can go online and it's a free essay workshop. Well, maybe you're on holiday and, you know, you can either join a live one or, or there could be one that's been recorded on YouTube that you can listen to and get advice from people who read the essays, uh, as an example. And, and what about those who have gone before you? Keeping notes along the way is important as well, because, you know, you don't realize that you might forget things. And there's a lot of detail with the applications, you know, and if you keep that little notebook around time or when you're doing research in universities as well, we're going to want to know why you want to apply to us. And, and there are going to be questions. And, and if you've made notes as you've listened to some of those virtual seminars or when the climate is better, you might even have a chance to visit or you talk to someone who's been to that university, then you have something concrete to say, because we don't want you copying our websites. We want you to internalize the information and then give it back to us in, in your own words. Your voice, again, is so important. I love the, the idea that going out into nature, spending some time thinking about yourself, what it is that you really want, what's unique about you, what you bring. I think that's great advice for the college application process or basically any moment you're making a big decision in life. So thank you, Liz. In a moment, we'll hear more from Adele Gillen and Luz O'Connell on how to produce a strong US college application. Let a friend or student know about the podcast. There are many opportunities for young Australians to study in the USA. Connect with us by searching for Education USA Australia in your browser or the episode notes in your podcast app. Speaking of preparation, how do you recommend students engage with admissions departments when completing their application or researching a school? It is easier for Australian students now than even just a couple of years ago because we are offering, you know, we as higher education, we are offering so many virtual opportunities. You know, the fact that we have live student tours where you can, you know, sit in Perth and join and talk to a Penn student and visually sort of walk around the campus. Now, I know it's not the same as being there in person, but it's a lot better than not having anything if you can't make it across the vast Pacific Ocean. I also encourage you to ask questions of lots of different people to then form your own informed opinion. So universities will facilitate that, not just with live chats, but also that you can just send off a question of whatever nature that might be. It could be a financial question. It could be a question about an academic department or, or what have you. The most efficient way of communicating is obviously go on the contact page of the website and find out who is manning the questions on a 24-7 basis. I know sometimes people think you have to find a person to get an answer, and that's not always the most efficient. And I, I speak for myself, you know, I'll be now weeks on end in selection committee. Email isn't something that I'm working on all day, but I have a group of colleagues that are, you know, so that I know students want a quick answer. So, so finding that contact information can be very, very helpful. I know that uh, there are definitely some colleges and universities that track something called demonstrated interest. You know, now with all the tools behind the scenes, you know, they will want to know how interested a student is and, and actually see who has attended a particular session or who has reached out and so on. So we don't track that, but there are schools that do. So just be aware of that. But I think what all universities share in common, if they ask for essays and so on, I think that's also one of the trappings, you know, or myths that all the focus should be on 
uh, what I call the common app essay or the personal essay. And that's really important to hear the story. But sometimes students don't understand that where we spent an incredible amount of time is trying to understand if it's a good fit and asking students to have done the research, not only to decide whether to apply, but being able to also share that with us. And I see some absolutely amazingly talented students who then don't quite fully use that opportunity to talk about the fit because they copy a few things from our website, so they have some facts in there, but they don't internalize what that university is all about and put it in their own words. And we're not asking someone to declare what they're going to do with four years because we'd like students to come with lots of intellectual curiosity and it's a journey, but we do want them to know and, and students especially don't look at the curriculum. You know, so I'll use as an example, one of our fellow Ivy League schools, Columbia, is very proud of their core curriculum. Well, to apply to a place like Columbia and not even recognize that they have a core curriculum might be an issue. Or, or I'll give an example. We, we have two economics degrees at the University of Pennsylvania. One is the theoretical economics within a liberal arts college. And the other is an undergraduate business degree from the Wharton School. Well, you'd be surprised still how many students say they want to study economics at the business school, which means they haven't looked at the curriculum, right? They've only looked at the title. So that is one of the biggest pitfalls. Students don't, and, and part of that might be that they're looking more superficially at institutions and not digging deep enough, or that they're not taking the time. They're not using the holiday breaks when they're not involved in you know, and have all these other demands or not starting early enough or applying to too many universities and spreading themselves too thin instead of targeting the institutions. So I think that's an area where you can really make a difference. So that would be my, my words of encouragement. And with the amount of information that's available, you're not waiting for a brochure to arrive in the mail, you know, by boat. You know, you really can get online at any time. And there's so much out there. I do remember all those admissions brochures coming in the mail, though. I guess that dates me a little bit. Liz, turning to academic preparation for a minute, I have a couple of related questions. What does it mean when a university advises applicants to pursue a rigorous academic program? And related to that, do you have any thoughts on the choice Australian students often have to make between studying for the International Baccalaureate or for the HSC and state certificates? I think, again, another myth, right? I think that uh, if, if you're looking at the last uh, part of your question about HSC and International Baccalaureate, I think there's a myth that one program is preferred over another, which actually is not true. You know, we have students coming to our university from every conceivable national system, and Australia has a wonderful national educational system. If that is the right choice for a student and that is what's on offer at the school, of course, that is what the student is going to pursue. And sometimes there's the assumption that it has to be something that is closer to what's offered in America uh, so people understand it. And, you know, universities like ours have staff. It's their responsibility to know about the different educational systems because that goes back to context, is to understand what it means if you get an internal marking of an 80 
in Australia or in Canada or in South Africa or the UK and the US, those mean entirely different things. And that's important to understand. The International Baccalaureate is, you know, obviously all over the world. And I know that a number of Australian schools have that. And sometimes a school has two options. You can go down say the HSC track or the IB track. And it's really what is best for the student because everyone is different and making the most out of that. But one is not preferred over the other. And rigorous curriculum is really geared towards the United States because the US curriculum is a curriculum of choice which means that all A's aren't created equal. There are many different courses that you can take, and we want someone to take the most challenging curriculum, right? And there's other terminology as well that you hear, things like GPA, you know, very American term, right? So my advice is, if it's relevant to your schooling and your community, but one can also turn it around and say, what are we looking for? It's to better understand that the student has made the most out of the opportunities and stretched and challenged themselves. So where do we go for that information, we go to something called the school profile that is again an American term, but it is something through the great work of Education USA, working with careers advisors throughout Australia. I've seen more and more Australian secondary schools put together a wonderful school profile uh, where they really talk about things that are really important to us, for example, the grade distribution, the intake at the school. You know, because there are some schools where they do really well, say, on the HSC, but there's grading within the school. But then if you understand that what the intake is and you understand what the grade distribution is, and it's very difficult to get certain grades, you know, but some schools have grade inflation and others have the opposite, right? And also what's available at the school curricula-wise and what's available outside the classroom. So that's really important to us. And also our partners here in this process, we only work directly with the schools. Um, so it's really important to hear from uh, the school uh, what's on offer, what do these things mean, and how has the student really engaged, and the teachers, of course, as well. I'd like to ask a question that I am sure is on the mind of all Australian and probably all international students. Does your school or do universities review applications from international students and American students differently? Well, that's that, that's a question that's very common, you know. And first of all, there are four thousand universities, right? And you have private universities, and you have uh, public or state universities in the United States, you know. And and if you're looking, say, at the University of California, I'll just pick that as an example because it's on the other side of the country from where I am right now. It makes a difference if you're from the state of California or if you're from outside. Now, outside could mean where I am in Pennsylvania, or it could mean Australia. Pennsylvania and Australia are both outside of California, right? So that would be different. But truthfully, if you look at the majority of universities, where international comes into play is, do you need a visa? Because then the International Student Office needs to get involved to issue the I-20. And do you need financial aid? Because depending on the institutional financial aid policies, there could be a difference, right? But otherwise, what it really means has nothing to do with your passport. It has to really do with where you're going to school. 
and being able to understand the context of the curriculum and the environment that you're in, right? And there is, again, the myth that there's a quota, that there's another box you end, even if it's a virtual box that you end up in, and so on and so forth. Now, again, it's always good to ask that question because there are some variances, especially between state and private schools. But generally speaking, it is just understanding that context. I know a lot of our listeners are parents of potential applicants, and so I wonder if you have any advice for them on how they can best support the application process for their children. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I know parents play an important role being sort of a parent myself in this process, and we all want the best for our now adult children. But let's take a look a little bit at the journey ahead for a student who's going to the United States. We have such a variety of institutions, and because of the laws we have in the United States, you know, a student has to give permission for their parents to have any say in the matter or access to any information. So if you are not ready as a young person to make decisions and be proactive about it, it's going to be very difficult. So my advice to parents is start now. It's going to make it better for your adult children when they go off to university. And in in the U.S., you know, many of us have a tradition of teaching our offspring to drive. It's a little bit of a rite of passage. Just visualize for a moment that time a parent has to hand over the steering wheel and the keys to their now adult child. Well, I'm suggesting you use that metaphor when it comes to college admissions, right? You're the cheerleader, you're the supporter. You're also there to encourage, but also to to support if things don't go the way maybe was envisioned. You know, you wanna be there to, to support and guide and you wanna be there to celebrate at the end and you wanna be there to be part of the journey. But it's the time for the birds to fly. Remember we talked about the voice? We talked about the storytelling. I think it becomes very difficult for an applicant to truly write an essay and tell us their story if they're hearing from a family member, oh, you should write about this. Oh, I've heard from so-and-so that this is the right topic, you know? So I think it's really important to find that delicate balance. But there is one area where parents really play a very critical role, and that's in the financial side. And that should happen early, is the conversation about, do we have the resources for this education, or is it important to apply either for a merit scholarship, an athletic scholarship, or some other talent scholarship, or looking at a school with need-based financial aid, and what does that involve? You know, and, and there's a lot of paperwork involved, and it is an important role for parents Uh, to play early so that that can honestly be discussed and and, and looked into. But I would really suggest the uh, passenger seat and the cheerleading role. That's great advice. Do you have an opinion, Liz, on whether families should use agents to help them through the application process? That's a, a very interesting question because, you know, our conversation on this podcast has been a lot about putting the student in the driver's seat. I know that it takes a lot of time 
It takes a lot of energy uh, to fill out what by some is seen as a very complex application process to what you would experience in other countries with no guarantees at the end. And students lead very busy lives and families want to be supportive. But there is also that myth out there, as we talked about earlier, that there is this magic formula. I, I mean, I see ads, you know, as I was waiting for our conversation today, I, I had ads pop up from Australia about talk to so-and-so who knows knows how to get into such and such a school and so on. And it's like, no, that's not true. And I think it confuses the student to think that there is this magic way. There really isn't, you know, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of research and a lot of initiative on the student's part. And I think the danger is to have too much influence from others and not have the student's authentic voice come through. The student can sometimes appear, shall we say, more packaged, and the soul of the application might not be there. But it takes also a student who's very self-disciplined, very organized, sticks to deadlines, starts the process early. Otherwise, you're sort of outsourcing all of that. But then if a student isn't doing that now, are they going to do that when they go to university? You know, when should that learning experience take place? So, And then, as we said earlier, too, you have also all these this free information, all these virtual webinars that universities have about how to write essays. And tomorrow morning, we're doing one at the University of Pennsylvania with my colleagues about uh, how to apply to selective schools. You know, it doesn't cost anything except your Wi-Fi time, you know. So Education USA and everything that Education USA does throughout Australia, I mean, you know, those are objective free resources that are available to students. We have a couple questions that are common to all of our Graduate in the USA podcasts, and so I'd like to turn to those now. What college experiences have stayed with you since graduating, especially as you came to the US as an international student? Ah, time to reflect. I have spent most of my uh, time at Penn in a building called College Hall with a window overlooking something that many American universities have, which is a green, because we have a little bit like a park surrounded by a city. And College Green is what brings back a lot of memories to me, because remember we talked about community at the beginning of the podcast, and, and that sticks with me, because we all came from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different interests, different backgrounds. Yet College Green brought us all together. It was where we celebrated coming together as a class the first time for convocation when we sang the school song, The Red and Blue, together. Heyday, which was another tradition where everyone became a senior. It is where the faculty applauded us when we walked with caps and gowns onto Franklin Field for graduation. But it was also where we supported each other during difficult times. When sad things happened around the world. I remember when there were the bombings in Kenya, and I remember, you know, well, I didn't remember from my student days, this was as a staff member days, you know, what happened in New Zealand. I remember 9-11, you know, everyone coming together. The night that Nelson Mandela passed, you know, everyone came together on the green. But then it's also where a hammock is up and students are taking pictures of gray squirrels. And, and I'm thinking of Australia right now. We have this wonderful student organization called ANSAP, which stands for Australian New Zealand Students at Penn. 
and they have something that probably you would appreciate. They have something called this, a sausage sizzle, where they bring out the flags <laughs> and the barbecue on the green. And it's a way to celebrate Australia, New Zealand culture in the beginning of the year, you know. So all of this happens, you know, on the green. So those are fond memories that will stay with me for the rest of my life. I agree. I think the U.S. college experience is so much about building community and finding out what kind of person you want to be and having the space to be within a, a group of people who are all on that same journey. For me, I loved my liberal arts education and our professors encouraged us to question and debate ideas freely. And it was those intense conversations that I most fondly remember about my college experience. Liz, any other thoughts about college memories that, that bring a smile to your face? Although I don't know if you can beat that that sausage sizzle example for this audience. It's the people. I mean, the friends for life from all over, but also people that, that are brought to campus, you know, and I'm dating myself here, but maybe the parents in the audience remember this. So I hear sitar music on the green and remind, I saw a few students sitting under the oak trees playing the sitar, but also how I went over to the university museum and listened to Ravi Shankar play the sitar. And at the same museum, which is about a block from now my office, I remember something that maybe Australians can relate to in terms of your New Zealand neighbors was having the privilege of sitting one evening listening to Sir Edmund Hillary talk about climbing Mount Everest while he was showing black and white eight millimeter movies about his experience uh, in Nepal, you know, and, and I was like, what? That's remarkable you know, here's this incredible human being, and I'm just sitting right next to him while he's telling stories, you know, and that's above and beyond all the other experiences that you would expect from a university. But th those are just a couple of, of, of people that I encountered for, you know, who we invited to campus during my time there. Yeah, that is incredible, Liz. Wow. I had, when I was thinking about this question, the same kind of thought that it really is about the people. So when I think back, especially to my time in graduate school, I smile when I think that even though I didn't know I was going to go on to become a diplomat at that time, I do think my experiences of studying and working side by side with so many people from different backgrounds, different countries, really influenced uh, my future career path. And I think to, greatly to my benefit. As we're wrapping up, I, I have one final question. If you were speaking directly with a group of Australian students today about whether or not to study at a U.S. college, what would be the one thing you really wanted them to remember? What I, I really think of, you know, I, I've had the privilege of, of working with students from Australia for a few decades, right? And what's coming to me is what they're telling me or what they told me, rather, when they were applying, knowing them as students, and then for those who have graduated, gone on into life, you know. And, and the, what comes to mind is this philosophy that we have, and, and it's not right or wrong, but the philosophy we have of the first degree has what you were referring to, Adele, this liberal arts at the core, regardless of what you're studying, right? And that is the belief that the world we live in is a very complex place. And no matter what you're going to do for the rest of your life, it's important to understand the world we live in. It's important to think critically. It is important to be you know, a problem solver. It's important to, to be able to listen to others' opinions and so on and so forth. And it's also important 
to look at things from different disciplines. You know, I'm, I'm looking at something that's uh, close to many of us, which is climate change that, you know, whether it's Australia or the U.S. or somewhere else, you know, and, and that cannot be looked at just simply from one lens, you know, and I think this is where the liberal arts comes into play, as well as this opportunity of not having to declare what you're going to do, you know, coming from Sweden, you have to declare what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And what if you make the wrong choice, you have to start all over again, you know, here you can come and not know what you're going to want to do. And, and it's only one out of many things, you know, I'm thinking of a young man who happened to be from Melbourne, we had no favoritism with Melbourne, it was just coincidental. And he had been really involved in theater in Melbourne when he was in school. So where did he end up? He ended up studying in the Wharton School of Business at Penn, real estate and finance. Yet he minored in cinema studies. Yet he was incredibly involved in the theater scene, especially improvisational theater. And what was his first job when he graduated from Penn recently? Not to work in the financial field, but he got a president's engagement prize, which was very much Benjamin Franklin's philosophy of giving back to society. He received $150,000 with his team to teach improv theater in public schools in Philadelphia. Now, I'm sure that will not be the end of his journey, but it's part of his journey. And it just shows that he wanted more than just ticking off a box. He, want, he wasn't sure he wanted to develop. And I hear so many of our Australian students talk about the opportunity to also consider their outside interests and engage deeply at university. And we all know about the athletes. I mean, we had our share of the Olympic Barcelona boat for Australia in rowing, you know, and all of that. But I'm thinking of another young man who coincidentally was from Melbourne, but again, no preference. It was just coincidental. He had been very involved as a leader within Model United Nations across schools in, in the Melbourne area and in Victoria in general. And he knew that he really didn't want to give that up. He wanted to continue that together with, I don't know what I want to study in the liberal arts. And he ended up doing that, but he also became president of our student government. He was our first international student to lead our undergraduate assembly. Uh, and then he ended up working on two continents and doing all kinds of exciting things. And he was back in Melbourne and, and what have you. But, but it was that whole, like, the globe is there. I, you know, the journey has just begun. And I, I, I have lots of things I want to explore, as opposed to staying at home in a more predictable situation with people you've gone to school with and grown up with, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I would just think about what's the good fit where you are in life right now. What, what resonates? Yeah, it's that that idea of self-reflection and knowing yourself and mm -hmm. understanding what it is you really want out of this U.S. college experience and if it's the right fit for you. It's a hard question, but if you spend some time thinking about it, I bet that people will be able to really present their story and the journey they're hoping for in a compelling way on, on a U.S. application. Well, Liz, thank you so much for this chat today. I have found it very enlightening as hopefully someday the parent of somebody who's applying to U.S. colleges. And I hope that you'll agree that if our listeners decide they do want to apply to U.S. college or university, they would benefit from engaging with Education USA Australia in Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. 
Our advisors have supported Australians for over 30 years, and not only can they answer questions, but Education USA is also the official source on U.S. higher education for international students. Please take advantage of their frequent events, which include specialist programming with staff from many U.S. colleges and universities, such as the University of Pennsylvania, thanks to our great connection with you, Liz. That draws our session to a close. And just once again, Liz, thank you so much for your time and generously sharing your expertise and advice. Been my pleasure. Thank you. On our final episode of this series, How to Be Recruited as a Student Athlete, join me, Samantha Jackson, and Australian Heather Marini, quarterback coach at Brown University. Thanks for listening to this episode of Graduate in the USA. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and share the show with a friend or high school student who you think is interested in doing their tertiary studies in the USA. I'm Samantha Jackson from Education USA Australia in Melbourne. Projects take a team. Thanks to all of our supporters of this podcast series, but a special thanks to all at US Public Affairs Australia, Tim Johnson, Samantha Juster, Gabrielle Canallan, the Education USA Network, and of course, our session guests, who without them, this series is not possible. This is Samantha Jackson, and thanks for joining us in Graduate in the USA.